0: So, this evening, I'd like to continue exploring the theme that we've been working on for almost the whole year, I think, which is the list of the ten parami. And these are are ten skillful qualities of heart and mind. And they support us to live with more ease, with more contentment, with more clarity. And one of the reasons I like this particular group of skillful qualities is that they're qualities that we really they need the rough and tumble of daily life to polish them. So traditionally the term parami is um, translated as perfection, but I prefer the term polishing. So these are qualities that we can polish through the nitty-gritty and the rough and tumble of everyday life. So I'm going to give you a list just as a reminder uh, of what these ten qualities are. Even if you've heard them before, it's often quite instructive to hear each quality and just notice, how does it land for you? Some of them, there might be an instant sense of recognition or interest. Some of them, there might be more more of a, huh? And some of them, there might be a bit of, hmmm. Uh, not sure about that one. All of that is useful information. So here's what they are. Generosity, or dana, Ethical integrity, the commitment to non-harming. Renunciation, or relinquishment. Wisdom. Energy. Patience. Truthfulness. Resolve and determination. Kindness or goodwill, metta. And then lastly, equanimity. So over these last few months, I've been working through the list in numerical order. And tonight, I'm going to be talking about the last one, which is equanimity. Now, although it's the end in terms of The sequence that I've been doing, I'll probably give quite a few talks on this because it is a very multifaceted quality. And the other facilitators have been jumping in and reviewing some of the other qualities in the list, uh, just whichever one they felt drawn to. And actually, this is really good because although equanimity is the culmination of the whole list, In a way, it really relies on all the other qualities that come before it. So again, we see this interrelationship between all of the qualities. They're sort of almost like reflections or facets of each other. So, for example, equanimity really requires patience, which is another of the parami. Patience is a kind of a close cousin for equanimity. Likewise, it takes resolve and determination to stay steady in the face of life's challenges. We definitely also need kindness or goodwill to help prevent equanimity from becoming perhaps at times a little dry or disconnected. And as we'll be exploring soon, it's actually impossible to have equanimity without some degree of wisdom, some degree of understanding. I'll say more about that soon. But first I want to look at, well, what actually is equanimity? Because I don't know about for any of you, but I had never even heard the word before I came into contact with these teachings. Anybody heard of it before this kind of setting? Yeah, it's a little bit of an indictment of our society that it's not a quality that's valued. It basically, on its most simple level, means just that capacity to stay balanced and steady, to maintain composure in the face of challenges. So it's a form of non-reactivity, but it's not non-responsiveness. So there's an important distinction there between reactivity and responsiveness. And I want to highlight that because sometimes equanimity is misunderstood as being about somehow trying to make ourselves inert or immune or passive or that we shouldn't care about anything or have any passion. But none of that will be true equanimity. Those are more symptoms of what are known as the near enemy of equanimity. So the near enemy is a state that may at first glance seem like it's the real thing, but it's just missing the target in some way. So the near enemies of equanimity are sort of disconnection or disengagement or passivity. But coming back to the distinction between reactivity and responsiveness, by reactivity, I mean just that tendency to act out of old habits. To act out of conditioned habit patterns, to just act from our default emotional and psychological conditioning. And I guess, I guess, all of us can think of times in our daily lives where that happens, where we just get caught in reactivity, we're on autopilot. So in English, we talk about having knee jerk reactions, just that sort of reflexive, somebody hits us verbally, hopefully, in a tender spot, we automatically lash out. Perhaps a partner or a family member gives us a certain look or says a word with a particular tone and boom, there's that response, that familiar reaction of irritation or frustration or self-judgment or doubt or fear. And there's just that reflexive movement away or towards the stimulus. And with that knee-jerk reaction, it tends to always be the same. There's no option. In contrast to that, responsiveness comes from a much more considered place. So being responsive comes from being tuned in, from being present, from listening, from being open. And as a result, Instead of just being pre-programmed into one standard reaction, there's a whole range of different options that become available. And what makes this responsiveness possible is equanimity. When equanimity is present in the heart and mind, it gives us the time and the space to see clearly. So then we have the capacity to actually make a conscious choice about whether or when or how to respond. This is where insight practice and the development of equanimity are very closely connected and mutually supportive. So the Pali word that's usually translated as equanimity is upeka. And upeka literally means to look over So it's a capacity to be in a position to see the bigger picture instead of maybe being caught in our tunnel vision of just our own limited, narrow perspective. So sometimes I think of the analogy for this as um, when we're hiking, hiking up a big hill or a mountain. Usually in the early stages of a hike, we're often slogging through the undergrowth and it's dense and hard work, and we can only see a few meters in front of us. But if we keep going after a lot of uphill effort, there's a point where we get above the tree line, and there might be a viewpoint, and suddenly we see the whole terrain where we've come from. And we see our surroundings in a completely new context. There's an openness and an expansiveness. We're not just stuck in our own narrow viewpoint anymore. So I don't know if any of you have had that experience when you suddenly come out and get that sort of panoramic view. How does that feel? For me, it often I have that sort of inner expansiveness and a kind of steadiness and a calm and there's a feeling of spaciousness and freedom. And I think of all those as being aspects of equanimity. Now, maybe that sounds good, but... For many people, maybe most people, equanimity is not such an easy quality to access. And perhaps a big part of this is just the daily life pressures that most of us are subject to. You know, as I just said, equanimity is not something that's in our culture anymore. It feels like a lost treasure, perhaps. It's not something valued by mainstream society usually quite the opposite. We are pushed into relentless busyness and productivity. We're having to do things faster and faster and navigate increasingly complex systems. And these systems and processes taking up more and more time and energy and all of that individual stress combines with societal pressure and we end up addicted to our devices and caught up in all kinds of escapism just to try to cope with those pressures. And all of this increases often people's alienation and polarization. And then we have the poly of the climate change and social injustice and war. and It's not surprising that often we feel like our capacity just to cope is undermined. And so it's not surprising if for some of us equanimity sounds as far away as the moon. We're fortunate though that it can be trained in. Like all of the parami, it's a quality that we can develop and strengthen with practice. And the first stage of the whole process involves bringing awareness to when equanimity is present and when it's absent. It's usually in the beginning is much more of the time. So usually it's much more obvious at first when equanimity is absent because usually the lack of equanimity creates some kind of suffering. And that suffering itself can be a kind of a mindfulness spell, it can help to recognize, ah, something's going on here, let's look a little more closely. Why am I getting so caught up in reactivity? So this is where mindfulness comes in. As you know, mindfulness is the crucial foundation of this whole path of practice. Just a refresher, something maybe not all of you are familiar with insight meditation, but mindfulness is the foundation. And it's the capacity to know what we're doing to know what we're experiencing as it's happening and without judgment. So it involves present moment, non-reactive knowing. Now maybe from that definition you can see there's a very close connection between equanimity and mindfulness. And this is good news because while equanimity might to some people sound elevated or lofty or remote, Actually, every moment of mindfulness is simultaneously strengthening this quality of non-reactivity. That relationship works the other way too. When we're not caught up in reactivity, it's much easier to stay steady and present and to clearly know our moment-to-moment experience, just as it is, which is what we were practicing in the meditation earlier. So mindfulness and equanimity have a mutually supportive relationship and together they give us a stable base from which we can see more clearly just where and when and how we're getting caught in reactivity. If we don't have this stable base of mindfulness and equanimity, which probably most people don't, then it's like we're just living in a torrent of reactivity. We're being constantly pushed and pulled by that stream of pleasant and unpleasant experiences and those flow automatically into liking and disliking and wanting and not wanting and then build into all kinds of afflictive emotions and mind states, irritation and anxiety and anger and fear. I don't have to tell you. (laughs) I don't think you probably have some sense at times of what I'm talking about just that proliferation into unpleasant states. So mindfulness is the crucial factor that counters that automaticity, Or What is that word? Automa- I'll just say automaticity, automaticness. You know what I mean. That instant chain reaction that gets kicked off. Mindfulness gives us a few nanoseconds of time and space that helps us to recognize this reactivity and gives us the possibility of doing something about it, the possibility of choosing a different response. So although mindfulness gives us the possibility of breaking that chain reaction, mindfulness alone is not enough. As the Burmese monk, Seyedra Utejania often says, Mindfulness alone is not enough. We need wisdom to help us choose a more skillful response. And wisdom comes from clear seeing, from insight into the truth of how things are. So this is where equanimity links very directly into insight practice. I'm not sure how familiar all of you are with Vipassana, with insight practice, but one of the main goals of insight practice is to see more and more clearly into what are known as the three universal characteristics. Anybody familiar with what those are? Yeah, that's the third one. Impermanence is the first one. And dukkha, the the middle one. So I'll... I'll give you just a quick run-through of what they are. It's understanding that all experiences have these qualities of being impermanent, of being unreliable, and being impersonal. And it takes some steadiness of mind to be able to open to that understanding. And at the same time, seeing or knowing those qualities more deeply powerfully strengthens equanimity. So again, there's a very direct relationship between mindfulness, equanimity, and insight. So just a little more about how that works, what these three are. So the first one, a Nietzsche, usually translated as impermanence. On one level, it's obvious, pointing to the truth. Everything changes, sometimes changes fast, sometimes slowly, but nothing is fixed, stable, or ultimately reliable now because of that instability and unreliable unreliability the buddha recognized the second characteristic is dukkha dukkha is usually translated as suffering <laughs> but in this context suffering is not a good translation it doesn't make sense to say that everything has the characteristic of suffering what it's pointing to is the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness of it. So if we look carefully, even the most pleasant experience, is it reliable? You know, when you're really, really happy, is there ever any part of you that say, like, oh, this is going to end, or I won't fully open to this because it's just going to go away. <laughs> so even in the most beautiful experiences, there can be that tinge of dukkha in the sense of unsatisfactoriness. Then the last of these three characteristics, anatta or not-self, is for most people the most counterintuitive. So just to give you a brief foray into that, because of the truth of impermanence, what we usually think of as me is also actually constantly changing, unstable and in flux. But we tend to usually unconsciously try to make a fixed identity out of that flux. We create a persona, you could say. And we need to keep reinforcing and shoring up that identity to give ourselves a solid sense of self. Now this is another huge topic that could go into a whole series of talks. But what I want to highlight tonight is the impersonal aspect of it that who we think we are is actually a constantly changing process of causes and conditions coming together. And a lot, maybe even most of those conditions, are not under our control. And in reality, we have much less control over circumstances than we usually like to believe. So what are the implications of that? For most people, it's not so easy, even for experienced meditators, to fully open to those understandings, because they challenge some of our deepest beliefs about how we are and how the world is. So it's possible even right now, some of you might be noticing some twinges of reactivity. So even that right there is an opportunity to practice equanimity. If there is resistance or frustration or tuning out or irritation, can you just know that? Not feed it, just allow it to be there. And we can have more discussion if there are any questions at the end of the talk. The reason I wanted to bring these three characteristics in now is because the wisdom that they offer is a very powerful antidote to most forms of reactivity. So when I was reflecting on this talk over the last few days, and I was looking at my own life and just investigating, well, where and when and how do I fall out of equanimity and into reactivity? And when I looked in pretty much every example that I thought of, that reactivity was coming because I wasn't seeing clearly into these three characteristics. I wasn't seeing the situation was impermanent, unsatisfactory, impersonal. So in pretty much every situation I thought of, there was always some kind of unrealistic expectation beneath it an expectation that was out of alignment with these characteristics. So in some circumstances, there was an expectation that went against the reality of impermanence. I didn't want something to change, or I didn't want a person to change. In other circumstances, there was an expectation that went against the reality of unsatisfactoriness. There was an underlying belief I should be able to get all of my needs met, and if a particular situation or a particular person wasn't meeting those needs, then I just needed to try harder. And then the last one, anatta or not-self, taking things personally, identifying with experience, believing that I should be in complete control of every aspect of my life. Also a powerful form of suffering. So in case that's all sounding a bit abstract... Let's take an example from real life, from my own life. Fairly simple example of equanimity not being so present. So as I think most of you know, I travel a lot. and I go and teach retreats in Australia, in the U.S. mostly. And particularly when I travel in the U.S., I get a lot of opportunities to watch reactivity. And there was an experience four or five years ago when... Usually I try to avoid flying through LA, but for some reason on this occasion I did. I had a flight to LAX. And even more than usual, so much of the systems in that airport were broken down, weren't well managed, created lots of extra stress for people. So just a simple example, all the elevators and all the escalators in one entire terminal were out of order simultaneously. So you had to walk the entire length of the terminal to find a working Lift, get up one floor, and then walk the entire length of the terminal back to get where you needed to be. All this with tons of luggage. And then on that particular trip, I had an early morning connection, so I booked an expensive airport close to the hotel, thinking, well, it will have an airport shuttle. It said, had an airport shuttle I would save money on taxis. But when I called the hotel, I said, oh, no, the van's broken down, so you just have to use Uber or Lyft. Now, because I don't have a U.S. phone number, I can't use Uber or Lyft, so I had to get a taxi. And the taxis aren't allowed to come to the terminal, so you have to walk with all your luggage like a mile to where the taxis are. And then because they're on the airport, they have an airport surcharge and they have a minimum fee of 20 or $30 to go a five-minute ride. So my whole plan to save money by staying at this expensive hotel totally didn't work. There's half a dozen other details like that. I won't bore you with them. That's just a random sample of how my equanimity was getting undermined. And when I finally got to Boston after another very delayed flight, a friend of mine picked me up from the airport and I was blathering on about all this. And eventually he said, you know, the problem wasn't the situation. The problem was your expectations. And I was like, oh. In every single one of those situations, I was comparing what I thought should be happening and how it was supposed to be and how it would have been back here in New Zealand. And that was just fueling all of this reactivity. And then in a similar situation just recently, well, on this recent trip, five years later, I got to the airport at 10 in the morning for a noon flight and the flight was delayed half an hour, then another half an hour, then another half an hour, then another half an hour, and finally after 14 hours of waiting at the gate, they canceled the flight just after midnight. And... Everyone had to go and find a hotel, and they were just like, oh, if you want to claim, just sign up on the website. (laughs) And I still don't have my luggage from this current flight, thanks to United. So I can't take all the credit here. Actually, when I was thinking about this, I thought, maybe if you just travel with United Airlines enough, (laughs) you'll develop some pretty strong equanimity. (laughs) At the very least, you'll lose the expectation that your flight will leave on time and that the crew will show up and that your bag will arrive on the same flight as you and that they will not give you any assistance or support anywhere along the way. So maybe that is a fast track to equanimity practice. Yeah, you probably all have your own equivalent of that. And, of course, I'm joking, and these are fairly low-stakes, real-life examples. I'm just seeing how expectations can get in the way of equanimity. But I think it's really useful to use those real-life, smaller examples so that when the bigger challenges come along, we're better prepared to meet them. So my new training slogan is, expectations are the enemy of equanimity. And you may be able to think of similar examples from your own life we can talk about later. So even just in everyday life, notice when, again, in my own context, the printer should not be jamming right when I have this important document to print. The bus shouldn't be delayed when I'm trying to get to a medical appointment. My friends should show up on time or let me know that they're going to be late and on and on and on. All those little trivial expectations, all the way up to the big ones. This body should never get injured. It should never get ill. It shouldn't be aging, and it definitely should not be dying. Now, intellectually, we know that that's absurd. But somehow, we still seem to need multiple wake-up calls to help us understand reality more clearly. So equanimity is what supports us to do that. It compels us firstly to notice when we've lost it, and then secondly to investigate why and how are we getting caught. So coming back to that framework of the three characteristics, we can ask which ones we're not seeing clearly. So Anicca, impermanence, instability, unreliability. Am I wanting things to stay the same? Am I resisting change? Am I holding on to the past? Or maybe fantasizing about a better future? Then dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the truth of imperfection. Am I trying to find lasting happiness in situations or people that can't deliver it? Is there a sense that, well, I just get a better job? or a better salary, or a better place to live, or a better partner, then everything will be okay, and I'll live happily ever after. It can actually be a relief to understand that this world is inherently imperfect. We're never going to get everything lined up all nice and tidy. Even the Buddha wasn't able to make everything go his way all the time. And this understanding ties in with anatta, or not-self. Getting caught up in taking things personally and having everything refer back to a solid sense of me at the center of it all, it's yet another source of suffering. But when we can relax back into understanding that our self-image is just that, it's an image, it's not real, It's an illusion that we're constructing ourselves. What a relief. What a relief to let go of all that effort to be seen and to be liked and to be approved and to be validated. And to see that we really don't have nearly as much control over any of it as we like to think we do. Now there's so much more that we could say about all this, which is partly why I realized I probably need to do more than just one talk on equanimity. I want to finish soon so that we do have some time to explore this together. I just want to finish by saying that in the Buddha's teachings, as I think you know, there's lots of different lists of skillful qualities, and equanimity appears in pretty much every one of those lists. And it always appears in the last place so it's the last of the four brahma vahara it's the last of the awakening factors and here it's the last of the 10 parami and to me that placement of equanimity as the last one suggests that in some ways it's hard one Much as we might like to, we can't just tell ourselves, oh, be equanimous or have equanimity. (laughs) You can try, but at least in my experience, it generally doesn't work. Equanimity develops naturally from all the other skillful qualities that come before it. It comes through meeting the everyday challenges of being human that all of us have to face. So if we can welcome those challenges with wisdom rather than resistance, every difficulty that we meet becomes an opportunity to strengthen equanimity. And that has immense benefits, not only for we ourselves, in terms of less stress and pain and suffering, but for everyone around us too. Because we're not acting out on that same stress and pain and suffering and inflicting it on others. So equanimity supports living with greater ease, happiness, peace. And ultimately, it leads all the way to the most um, ultimate form of equanimity, which is nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So that's just a sneak preview of where this is all going. Okay, I think that's probably plenty for this evening. Thank you for your attention.